Anyone who has uh, children who they desire to go to Stepping Stones, the children are now dismissed. Good morning, everyone. And as Bruce and Mark have both already said, this is the first Sunday of Advent, a time of year which we remember and we celebrate that God came down and became incarnate. Or in other words, God humbled himself. And in the person, the first, sorry, in the second person of the Trinity, the Son became man, yet still fully God, the perfect sacrifice for sin. And during this Advent season, not only do we remember what Christ did in his first coming, we celebrate with great anticipation his second coming, when he will bring his people home. During this Advent season, Pastor Mark and I, we will be preaching through a series called The Promised King. Each Sunday, we'll be examining an important um, part, an important aspect in the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the garden, and as he progressively revealed it in Scripture. This morning, we're looking at the promise itself and what prompted it. Or in other words, um, the fall of man, the curse of sin, and the glorious grace-filled promise of salvation. We see all of this in Genesis 3. In a few moments, we'll be reading through Genesis 3, verses, um, verses 7 through 24, which is right after the fall. Yet the verses before it, the early parts of chapter 3, are just as important. For Satan disguised himself as a serpent, testing Adam and Eve to break God's law of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a temptation which they succumbed to. And because of their breaking of God's law, sin entered into the world. Let us pick up um, in verse 7 of Genesis 3 and read through the end of the chapter. And they heard... Oh, I guess... Yeah, there we go. And the, and the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, holy and almighty God, please open our hearts and open our minds that we may hear your word, that we may see your glory. And Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you or someone else you've known ever asked this important question? Why does God allow bad things to happen? If so, you're not alone in asking this question or hearing it because it's asked a lot. We see so many visible problems in this world, like famine, death, sadness, and suffering. Sadly, many Christians, though, don't have a good answer to this question. Yet it is plain in Scripture what the answer is, and it's found in our passage today. Genesis 3, it explains the reason for pain and suffering and death in the world, and it's all because of sin. Yet it doesn't stop there. Genesis 3 also continues, and it shows us the message, or sorry, it shows us the most important verse in all of Scripture. Now, if you go around and ask the children of this church or the teenagers, and ask, what does Mr. Dan say is the most important verse in all of Scripture, most of them would all say the same thing. Genesis 3.15. Why is that? Well, Genesis 3.15, it contains the first promise of salvation. It is the gospel in nugget form. It is part of the covenant that God makes with man that he will save his people from their sin. For just before God made his covenant promise with Adam, acting as our, meaning all mankind's representative, God broke, or sorry, we, all right, we broke God's law in the garden. And because of Adam's action, sin entered into the world. And the curse of sin, its consequence, meant everything, everything completely from that point forward would change. We see in our passage today that the curse of sin it distorted. It changed. It caused pain. It ruined our relationship with God and allowed Satan to set up a kingdom here on earth. But in the midst, in the midst of the punishment, Adam receives the promises, the promise of Genesis 3:15 shines through. It says this: I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or in other words, the father will send a savior to save his people from their sin by reversing the curse restoring our relationship with God, routing Satan, and ruling as king of all. As God's word progresses, we see that the Savior is none other than God himself. The Son, Jesus, acting as the perfect, needed, and only Savior for sinners. Let's look at the first lesson in our passage, that Jesus the Savior came to reverse the curse of sin. We see this in verses 16 to 19. Now, when we think of curse or the word curse, I don't know a lot about a lot of you, but I'm a huge baseball fan, and this instantly comes to my mind, the curse of the Bambino. Now, if you don't know, the curse of the Bambino, it was a long losing streak with the Boston Red Sox from 1918 through 2004. For almost 100 years, the Boston Red Sox never won the World Series. For in 1918, they sold one of the greatest baseball players of all time, Babe Ruth, also known as the Great Bambino, from which it derives its name. 
from, from, um, from the Boston Red Sox to the New York Yankees. And then, until 2004, every single time the Red Sox would get even close to winning the World Series, fans would start to get worried. Because something was going to happen. A player would either make an inconceivable error, or something else would happen, and they would have losing the, their chance at winning the World Series. Yet in 2004, everything changed. The Red Sox would finally reverse the curse of the Bambino by beating the Cardinals in the World Series. And they would go on to a time of great prosperity, winning two more World Series in just over a decade. Now, while the Red Sox were able to reverse their curse on their own, the same cannot be said for the curse of sin. Something that has been going on so much longer than only 100 years. For it has been ravaging us since the garden and is more widespread than just one baseball team. For it's for all of God's creation. And it can only be stopped by God himself as he promised that we, he would. Now, one aspect of this curse is that it causes pain. Specifically in suffering in childbirth, as we see at the beginning of Genesis 3.16, which says this, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, as any woman knows who's been through labor pains, this is an aspect of the curse that they know intimately. For this is not how God designed pregnancy to be, nor labor to be. He designed it to be painless, not painful. Yet sin destroys and it distorts God's creation that he called good. And this is part of the curse that does not end with physical pain and childbirth. It even goes a little bit deeper than that. Such as emotional pain. Not only that just accompany childbirth, but the loss of a child due to a miscarriage. Or suffering mental distress or depression after you have your newborn child come into this world. These are the effects of the curse of sin. Yet in the midst of this pain, and the midst of this suffering, there is still a sense of joy that God gives. As one author puts it, the pain of every childbirth is a reminder of the hope that lies in God's promise. Birth pains are not merely a reminder of the fertility of the fall, but they are a source of impending joy. For Jesus came as the promised seed of the woman to end all pain and to end all suffering. He endured the pain of the cross. He endured the agony, the suffering, the death of loved ones, his own painful death, so that any who believe in him will be with their heavenly Father in heaven, a place where there is no pain, no suffering, no sadness, for the act of Jesus' death on the cross of Calvary satisfied this aspect of the curse. We also see in our passage that this is not the only aspect of the curse. Unfortunately, it extends even further. Not only is there pain in childbearing, but there is also in marriage and in gender roles, which we see in the second half of verse 16, which says this, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The theologian Derek Kinder 
Um, he summed up this aspect in the curse beautifully. To love and to cherish has become to desire and to dominate. For in this part of the curse, Eve, like all women after her, had, a, had her relationship with God change, but also with her relationship with her husband as well. For this curse, it changed their perfect marriage in which there had been certain roles given to each one of them, Adam to lead and Eve to help. Instead, we see a desiring for her to supplant her husband in the leadership role of the marriage. Now, anyone who is married knows that they don't have a perfect marriage. They can't. Because they are both sinners, they cannot love their spouses perfectly as much as they desire to do so. This is something that needs not only to be heard in marriage seminars, but to be talked to people who desire to be married. Your spouse will not be perfect because of the depravity of sin. Our desires will not always be in line with our spouses, nor will our spouses' desires always be in line with ours. For due to the effects of sin, our marriages can rather be self-seeking rather than loving unconditionally. For we are to love our spouses as Christ loved the church. For Christ not only came as the Savior of sin, but as an example of love spouses are ha to have for each other. For as the prophet Hosea, he loved his wife Gomer. From, but from the consequences of her sinful actions, he, must, he had to go and buy her back. So Christ has showed us how we are to love for our spouses. For we are his bridegroom, he is our bridegroom, and we are his bride, as Ephesians 5 shows us. And he has lived, and he has died sacrificially for the church, out of love, out of compassion, just as a spouse is to live sacrificially for their, for their, um, for their spouse. Now this next aspect of the curse um, which Jesus came to reverse is part of verse 17, which says this, And Adam said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth you, forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Not only are the aspects of the curse directed at God's people, but also to which God brought out of, uh, out of the ground itself. For the curse also affects the ground. Since Adam did not listen to the commands of God, instead of trusting in worldly wisdom, worldly guidance, the role which he was given to be the worker of the land, it was made harder. Like that of the role of Eve was made more difficult. Now, the curse that affects the ground it does so in different ways than it does Adam or Eve. For it affects one of their primary needs, food, sustenance. For no one can survive long without it. The curse has brought about famine and blights. This is the opposite of what our first parents saw in the garden. They had a ready supply of food. And from a ground that was perfectly fertile, 
Unfortunately, the present condition of our land is a direct result of mankind's rebellion. Certain people, nations, and individuals, they have a hard time getting food. For the land does not always grow food as it should. It needs time to rest, unlike it did in the garden. Now, this may be a hard idea for us to get our minds around. For unless I am gravely mistaken, none of us in here are farmers. Now, we may have some gardeners in here. I know it personally since I see some people gardening, okay? But in the previous church I served, a majority of our congregation were farmers or had family that worked the land. And I could tell you from the conversations that they had with me, it was a constant struggle. Every year, they worried if the bugs were going to infest their crops. The harvest possibly could be lean that year. Or because we lived in a floodplain, whether the floods would cover the crops and they would become moldy and soggy, unable to be used. Agriculture has not been the same since the fall. Not only is the work hard, we, and we'll talk about exhaustion in just a minute, but it does not always yield the crop that you desire. Yet Christ came to reverse this aspect of the curse as well. And we see plain, it plainly in the Passion account. Before Christ was led to the cross, an entire battalion of Pilate's troops beat Jesus with a reed and made a makeshift crown of thorns and placed it upon his head. Not a golden crown that a king should deserve, but one made from the exact words of Genesis 3.18. Christ's sacrifice on the cross overcame this aspect of the curse as well. He took the curse of the ground upon himself to overcome it. Now the next aspect of the curse is exhaustion, which we see in the beginning of verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Now we can all relate to that. How many of you on Fridays, near the end of the school day or near the end of the work day, are just completely exhausted? Some people on Monday mornings are still completely exhausted, barely able to keep your eyes open, even though you have many things to do. Yet we must work to provide for our families or our own well-beings. We must learn so that we can grow for, for children. Yet in the end it still produces exhaustion. A bad reading of this passage would, be, would give us the notion that work in and of itself is part of the curse. That is so far from it. Adam was given a job in the garden before the fall to name every creature, which would not have been an easy task and one that would have taken some time. So the curse does not make us work Rather, it makes our work tiresome so that only by working hard are we able to provide for our family and ourselves. Jesus came and experienced this aspect of the curse as well. He became incarnate, being fully man yet still fully God, and experienced every aspect of our lives, including temptation, including exhaustion. His ministry was hard work. And we see him on the cross crying out in pain and agony as he completes his sacrifice. 
for this is what crucifixion does to you. It kills you, not by blood loss, by, but by exhaustion, total exhaustion. For you have to move your body up on the cross just to be able to take a breath. And that takes so much effort, so much exhaustion that they then usually give up and die. Jesus experienced the same exhaustion as you and I do. And to reverse the curse of sin out of love, he did so, even though it was deathly exhausting. Now this last part of the curse is what we think about most when we think about the repercussions of sin. We think of death. For as Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. The curse of sin brings about a limited lifespan, bringing about physical death. For until the curse of sin, we were made to live with God forever. Yet sin changed that. Sickness and sorrow are now mainstays in our daily lives. And not only physical death was brought, but spiritual death as well. For our relationship with God was broken, as we'll see in a few minutes. For we cannot repair it on our own. Only God can repair what we have broken by the one who overcame sin itself. And his death on the cross, it does more than just reverse the curse. It brings about new life. New life in Christ and eternal life in heaven with God. Praise be to God in sending Jesus as the needed Savior King. Every single aspect of the curse, Jesus came to reverse. He lived, he died, and rose again from the dead in the exact, certain, needed way so that every aspect of the curse from pain and suffering to death itself, would be overcome. That not only shows the love of God for his people, but also his sovereignty. God is powerful enough to overcome the curse. And God has the authority to overcome the curse. For his reach to overcome sin is great enough for the Father not only attempted salvation for his people, but he accomplished salvation. So that every drop of blood that was spilt was needed to overcome the power and consequence of sin. Not a single drop of blood was wasted. So how must we respond to this? There is only one proper answer. And we see it plainly in Scripture, like in John 4, that we must worship Him in spirit and in truth, praising and thanking God, the Savior King, and singing songs to Him in worship, as we've done so far this morning. Thanking Him, singing like the hymn we sang this morning, Joy to the World. In verse 2 and 3, it says this, Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. 
While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sin and sorrows groan, nor thorns infest the ground. He has come to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. This means that we are, not only were we made to worship, but we must worship. We must make worshiping God a part of our daily life. Singing praises to Him. Reading His Word. And living according to it. Not just on Sundays, not just on special days like we had with Thanksgiving, but every single day of our life. We need to make worship an ordinary act of our daily life. No matter your age whether you are young like my children or maybe you have grandchildren of your own, Jesus, if he is your Savior, you have reason to celebrate. Jesus came to reverse the curse. He came out of love for you and out of a desire and out of duty, we must worship the King for his mighty act on earth cross yet jesus did not only come to reverse the curse in our second lesson we see he came to restore our relationship with god now restoration that's a sometimes a very hard concept for us to get our minds around for instance though most of us have a computer some of you may even have a computer in your pocket or on your lap right now Computers, they get viruses all the time. You may download a malicious program or even just try to update your operating system or maybe even visit a website that you probably shouldn't have, and it corrupts your computer. And the files and the operating system, they stop working properly. And while we may be able to make small little changes to it, most of the time the damage is already done. At this point, many of us get frustrated either Decide, okay, well, all is, well, all is not well. I don't know what I'm going to do. Or some people may just throw their computer against the wall and call it a day. But there is something that we can do. There is something that can be done with our old system. It's called a system restore. Reverting the entire system back to a specific point in time. Changing it back to a time when the computer was acting correctly. Or taking it back to its original manufactured state. Similarly, this restore function on a computer, this is what God does with his people as part of saving them from sin. Restoring our relationship with him. Restoring it to a time out of peace with him rather than being at war with him. And in verse 7 through 13, in verses 20 through 24, we see that he restores this. Specifically, in verses 7 to 13, Adam and Eve, they try to hide their bodies and themselves from God after they've committed the sin, the first sin. They make loincloths for themselves out of fig leaves, and they hide themselves in the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve's eyes, though, they were opened to the reality that they sinned before God. They saw their nakedness, and they were ashamed. They tried to hide themselves in a place that they knew was safe. 
They hid in the bountifulness of the tree, something they knew God created for them to have and to live in. They hid themselves in the trees because the sound of the Lord was in the garden. Now, the Hebrew words to this are similar to what we see at Mount Sinai, specifically in uh, Exodus 19. The sound of the Lord means it is a call to obey and to hear. God, he meets with Adam and Eve, and Adam's response to these questions that God gives him are similar to the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. And actually, they're very similar to a child's response trying to talk back to their parents. They were afraid. They stood at a distance. While Adam and Eve, they tried to hide um, from the all-present, from the all-seeing, from the all-knowing God by hiding in the trees. They were like a child who was caught by their father breaking a rule. Yet unlike at Mount Sinai, God does not come down in lightning. He does not come down in thunder. But he asks them questions in a loving manner, as a father does. And Adam's response is like that of an indignant child blaming anyone but himself for the actions that he took. And the same with Eve shifting the blame to the serpent. They are fearful because they know that they've broken God's law. And they are aware that something has changed. They have, not just been they, have, uh, they have not just been told yet how their relationship with God has changed, but from this point onward, they are now fearful of God. For just like Adam and Eve, we deserve God's wrath. We deserve the punishment for breaking God's law, eternal separation from Him in hell. For we have rejected the loving kindness of the Father for our own desires. Desiring God's creation rather than the Creator Himself. Denying world, um, desiring worldly wisdom, desiring to create our own moral standards, our own moral judgments, rather than having God Himself define morality for us. Desiring to act in a way that we want, rather than living according to God's laws. Worshiping ourselves, rather than worshiping the creator of us all. Because of this rejection of our relationship with God, we are like Adam and Eve. We have reason to fear. For if we desire... If we desire the things of man rather than things of God, we deserve the rightful wrath of God because of sin. For by this action, we became unholy. We were like a white linen garment that has been now soiled with grass stains all over it, unable to be taken out on our own. And because God is holy, He cannot have sin in His presence. And in verses 23 and 24, Adam and Eve, they are cast out of the Garden of Eden. Shattering their relationship with the Father. For in the Garden, they had perfect communion with God. They did not fear. They didn't hide from Him. They didn't need to. They were able to talk to God directly. 
They didn't even need an intermediary like we have in Jesus. They were able to be in his presence, be in his glory, living as God made them to be. Perfect. Never wanting or needing everything. This is what Jesus came to earth to do. And this is why we celebrate Advent. Jesus came to restore our relationship with the Father. He did what we could never do. Become holy again. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a perfect sacrificial death, dealing with all that we are tempted, and he lived a perfectly, a perfect life according to God's law. Then, acting as the great high priest, he performed the sacrifice for sin, sacrificing himself on the cross, taking the curse of sin upon himself, taking all the punishment of sin, and died. And then, staying under the power of death for a time, three days later, he rose again from the grave to the glory of God the Father. And he conquered death. So that anyone who believes in Jesus, anyone who calls upon his name, will be saved. For if Jesus is your Savior, he makes you holy. Not because of your actions or anything you do or anything how you are, but because of his actions. He restores your relationship with the Father out of love for you. And he did this all because you cannot do this yourself. That is love. And that is the gospel. So how must we respond to this love? By seeking the king. As Isaiah 55, 6 shows us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. God has given us the gift of grace, unmerited favor with him. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, call upon his name and you will be saved. He will make you holy. He will restore your relationship with the Father. And you will grow <clears throat> by His Spirit to be more like Christ. Now, if you do know Jesus as your Savior, we are still supposed to seek the King, seek the Lord. Seek Jesus to rejuvenate, or in other words, to renew your relationship with Him. Renew your desire for the things of God. Use this relationship that God has restored for you. You have the opportunity to come before God in prayer. As we've been talking about all this year with our theme of prayer. Come before him with gusto. For as an old mentor of mine was fond of saying, the more we know what our heavenly father is like, the more we will leap into his arms in prayer. Know him. Call to him. So far this morning, we have seen that Jesus came with his first advent to reverse the curse of sin, to restore our relationship with him. And now we come to our last lesson, how Jesus came to rout and how he came to rule. We see this in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Now, many of you 
have personally served in the military or have family or friends who have. And in a military term, to rout means to have a decisive victory. And in verse 14 and 15, we not only see the promise of the Savior, as we talked about at the beginning of the sermon, but we see what Satan is able to do. Satan can now operate, seeking to devour us, to keep us from the light of Christ, but he will not go unchecked. As one commentator put it, our adversary of the devil may operate within limits that God has set, but that does not mean that his threat is not real, nor does it mean that there is no true, true battle going on between the forces of light and darkness. Nevertheless, because the Almighty is sovereign even over Satan, we can be assured that our enemy will not win in the end and that we have nothing to fear if we are at the Lord's side. Colossians 1, it, sh excuse me, it shows us that Jesus delivered the fatal blow to Satan on the cross. And in 1 Peter 5, Satan has been mortally wounded and that Christ and has inaugurated his kingdom, but it has not yet consummated it. We are living in the already, but not yet. God's victory is assured, but the battle from our perspective is still going on. Yet God is routing the attacks of Satan. If we are his, he is protecting us. And the very gates of hell continue to crumble because the gospel fouls him today. The light of Christ dispels the darkness of sin and the evil of Satan and his minions. They, may, they will lose their authority to hold the church in bondage. For Christ has won and he is king, and he reigns, and he will reign now and forevermore. Because of this truth, because of the truth that God has come to rout and rule, we must proclaim the truth of the gospel to all who will hear. We must share it with our friends, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with our schoolmates, and our family members. For like the child's song, this little light of mine, we must let the light of Christ shine into the world, not to let Satan blow it out, but to shine all over the world, to let it shine, to let it shine. Praise be to God for the love that he has showed, for promising to send the Savior from the seed of the woman, being born of man yet still fully God, who came to earth to be the Savior King, to rout Satan and to rule over all, who came to reverse the curse and who came to restore our relationship with the Father. Praise be to God. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, holy and almighty God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for sending Jesus and showing us in your word how you're going to do so. I thank you, Father, for showing us that how you came, how you sent Jesus to reverse the curse of sin, how to reverse all the aspects of sin so that we may have a restored relationship with you, that we may have eternal life in you if we call upon Jesus as our Savior. 
Father, thank you also for sending Jesus to rout the attacks of Satan and to rule over all of your creation. Father, thank you for this. Father, thank you for all that you have done and still will do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.